Welcome to A Regenerative Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers. And this is a podcast where we talk about the amazing things that are possible, the regenerative solutions that we can apply in our own lives to make our lives better and to guarantee a more centropic future. Today, we're talking about the Advanced Permaculture Student Online. This course is absolutely incredible. I've never had the privilege to work on anything like this before. This course is, I'm being able to apply everything I've ever learned in all the different arenas of my learning at the highest level. And I'm working with over 60 different teachers, experts, leading examples from all over the world in the regenerative field. This is my mentors, you know, this is like all the people I've been researching and learning from for the past few years. And they're all together, they're all working with me. We're all working towards a common goal. And it's an honor, it's an absolute honor to, to be here at this moment. And I really wanna invite you all to join the Advanced Permaculture Student Online. It doesn't matter if you've had a PDC, if you've not. I have people who have taught PDCs for years as students. I also have them as teachers. But this course, I mean, just dive in. You're gonna see. If you've checked out my book, The Permaculture Student 2, you, you know that we're reframing permaculture, we're broadening the scope, we're taking it into new areas, and we're, we're, we're taking it to the regenerative economy. We're making it careers. It's not just, you know, lifestyles and not just gardening. Uh, this, is, this is beyond that. This is everything. And this is what permaculture really was intended to be. Well, how David Holmgren describes it as a lens, as a way of seeing the world. One of the more recent ones that um, we've been, I've been involved with in just the last couple of years is where um, in New York Harbor, there's an island called Governor's Island. And uh, it's a, it looks like an ice cream cone from the air. And all of the um, old colonial buildings are at, in the ice cream part. And then the cone was like the parade grounds and all these barracks used to be on it. And they were built, I think, originally in the, around the Civil War. And so, you know, had troops in them through the years. I think the last time they had actually any troops in was just after the end of World War II. And then they'd been kind of left um, and they got very run down and they were condemned. So they were trying to figure out what to do with these buildings. And they decided what they would do is tear them all down and crush them all up. And then put them in big piles on the end of the island. So they were building mountains. I, I love it. Mountains, 70 foot tall mountains. Well, to New Yorkers, apparently those are mountains. So those of us who live in here in the Cascades, it's a little, hmm, okay, foothills. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, in, in relative to the place it is, it's now, how do you vegetate that? It's crushed up rubble from buildings. How do you put plants on there and make it, actually grow and look beautiful so that was kind of the um, charge that they put out and uh, one of my um, advisors Todd Harrington um, answered the challenge so working with a large landscape company um, they brought in some <laughs> engineered soil and when Todd told me that one I kind of rolled my eyes and went right that's engineered dirt 
Call it what it is. There is no biology in that stuff at all. And they leveled off the top of these hills and they had some nice elevation, you know, sharp cliffs and rolling cliffs and stuff. Um, and so now, here, here you go. We want a native grassland here and we want a conifer forest and we want a deciduous forest and we want this kind of uh, shrubbery here. We want these native plants here. And so they, you know, the architect had all the plants drawn in and now you have to go out there and establish that. Well, most of us know that if you tried to do that on engineered dirt, that it would be utter failure. That there would just be massive erosion and most of the, the engineered dirt that had been put on the top of the rubble underneath is just going to wash off into the ocean, into the harbor on all sides. It would just be horrific. Well, kind of like what happens in California when it burns. Um, nothing to hold. And so it just washes away. So um, Todd, looking at this, said he's going to apply biological principles, so a food web approach, and so made compost for each of those ecosystems with the biology in it for each of the sets of plants that were desired in that area. So there were big areas of, of grassland and native grasslands, and there was a ballpark, and so all of the biology going on to these places either is compost or where they planted the plants, they would put the compost around those plants because of course they were buying plants from nurseries that were growing in, you know, uh, conventional inorganic fertilizer uh, potting mix, basically sterile. And so he's putting in all of the biology that needs to go into those systems, injecting the um, mycorrhizal fungi if they were required. And so Today, when you go to this area, um, people from New York City flock there on weekends because it's beautiful. It's there back in um, conifer forests, there back in deciduous forests, they're in the native grasslands. It's um, everything had biology applied to it except for one of the face, sloping faces. There was a control that was left, and that's the only place they had any slope failures was in the conventional system where they were using inorganic fertilizers and pesticides to try to control the vegetation that they were they were putting on. So within the course of basically one growing season, they took this horrific dirt and by the addition of this biology, they could put in all of the plants and natives, all of the trees are natives, everything on there in the, in the park except for the ballpark area. Um, has been brought back to a condition of health. Um, infiltration into the soil is excellent. Um, some of the roots are starting to grow into the uh, crunch, crunched up rubble. No problem, because the biology's there before them. So Todd has some really great pictures where he goes through all of this and making the compost so that all the right organisms are being selected for. He would actually take his compost and grow the plants for the system, he would actually grow those plants in the compost before he planted them out. Wow. And so very successful in that kind of approach. So. And I said, so Ian, because he, he was a key liner as well and developed a really beautiful key line property. Um, and I said to Ian, so how, when you teach key line, how do you teach it? And he said, oh, I use the scale of permanence. And it was like someone just 
whacked me over the head with a hammer <laughs> or a really big book, something like one of your books, and um, so thick and floppy. <laughs> and, um, and at that point I went, oh, God, what have I been doing? What have I, you, know, sort of, you know, that sort of moment when you think, geez, I've just spent 20 years and I just bloody missed the point here completely. Anyway, so I completely rejigged the whole um, program around or presentation and uh, um, farm planning program around the scale of permanence, even though I talked about it, just I just hadn't thought that it could be a process. And I'm a process person. I just didn't, it just didn't, I don't know, it just didn't register anyway. Um, so anyway, I, um, I put that together and I kind of looked at it holistically. I sort of looked at the list as I talked about, you know, climate, um, climate, uh, land shape, water, blah, 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 soils. And I went, it's kind of not holistic. And I read the challenge of landscape, which I always have right here. Um, cause it's very, it's by far my favorite book. Um, and I read this and I, and I looked at it and I went, because I went to the section that Yeomans had on the T-line scale of permanence, which I'll read now. Um, where is it? Blah, 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 blah. Ah. The Keyline Scale of Permanence, or to give it its give it a full explanatory title, the Keyline Scale of the Relative Permanence of Things Agricultural. Right, and and it was and is a further development of the Keyline Plan. It was developed for the purposes of providing a yardstick or guide to every type and kind of decision that has to be made in any aspect of the of overall planning in the development and management of agricultural land. So I read that and went, mm, no, it doesn't. I didn't agree with it because it didn't deal with financials and it didn't deal, deal with uh, the human climate. And I went, oh, the human climate, right? And so started to think about it. And I thought, well, gee, what's, you know, because it's all about how the difficulty to change and the priorities and that. That's a, quite an interesting concept, the scale of permanence. And I went, oh, the climate, the climate of the mind. Oh, the climate of the mind is the hardest thing to change, you know, because I was trying to think of how I could embed, you know, with my holistic out view, uh, overview, I was trying to think, well, here's that circle with circles around it, that cellular view, if you like, and how can I bring all of those into the scale of permanence? And so I started to um, adapt some of the words and whatnot and, um, well, change the meaning, you know, because when you, we always, I mean, people talk about the, not just the climate, they talk about, you know, the financial climate is not so good at the moment or this climate is not so good. And I started to think about that more. And, and you know, we use the word climate a lot because it's a climate that's difficult to change. You know, the financial climate, the international finance, financial system is a difficult thing to change. The regulatory climate, people talk about that. So it all started to come together. And then I thought, well, soils, where's economy in this and where's energy? And so... Um, I put those on because you look at, I was thinking again, holistically, economy had to go there at number nine because it's relatively, it's something that's, it takes less time to fix than a soil. Um, and energy will, uh, I looked at it from the perspective of holistic management in energy cycle. And we're looking at being solar economists. So how can you make the most of solar energy? And the easiest way to do that is to grow plants. 
right? Because they are the you know they, the plant is the, the the plant is and photosynthesis is the is the provider of all things. Um, it's a provider of all of our nourishment. It regulates our climate. I mean, it does. It, it's it's so when you look at it as the base, it was natural that energy was going to go at the base to something that was topped with climate. And that all started to come forward for me. And I mean, that was a pretty powerful moment as you would expect. And I was damn glad that Yeomans thought of it. And uh, all I had to do was just do a little tweaking because <laughs> it wouldn't have been something I'd come up with. The reality of the hemp seed, it is the highest form of digestible protein in the entire planet animal kingdom. More than soy, more than beef, more than chicken, all of that. Why? And what was that keyword? The keyword was digestible. It's very unique amino acid profile of the hemp seed has all of the amino acids except for a full dose of lysine, which you can make up for in other foods. And it has no trypsin inhibitors. Trypsin inhibitors are properties within plants or meats or animals that uh, prevent us from being able to absorb protein. And there are no trypsin inhibitors in industrial hemp. So for example, folks often experience flatulence from soy protein or whey protein. That's trypsin inhibitors. And we don't have any of that with industrial hemp. On top of it, the industrial hemp seed is the perfect ratio of omegas three to six, polyunsaturated essential fatty acids. They're essential fatty acids because we require them to live and we don't make them ourselves. We have to get them from outside of our bodies to feed every system in our body. There are also two long chain polyunsaturated essential fatty acids that are basically impossible to procure from the plant kingdom. We generally have to go into the animal kingdom, primarily fish, and that's GLA and SDA, gamma linoleic acid and steridonic acid. All of this is in the hemp seed. So generally speaking, and we have to speak generally in hemp because hemp is actually a lot more complicated than folks realize. There are lots of different sizes and varieties of pedigreed certified hemp seeds for human nutrition, and there are different sizes. But generally speaking, three tablespoons of hulled hemp seeds, hulled means we took the shell off, will provide you with 10 grams of digestible protein. So have a steak. See if you can eat 10 grams, out, digest 10 grams out of it. These three tablespoons will give you 10 grams of a digestible protein and a full day supply of omega-3s and 6. We can feed the world and give them optimal nutrition for brain function for all of all of our body with this with this food source. So when we talk about the road to legalization and we talk about the DEA trying to make this superfood that we can feed the world with, illegal, a schedule one controlled substances, our road to legalization has not been easy. And the movement continued and continued and we build the movement and we spoke and we and we fought in Congress and people power did this guys. We can, we can do anything together. It's people who have done this and, and it's people who will bring it all the way home. It's us together. And this plant is a big, big part of this solution. In addition, of course, to the hemp seed, that very valuable superfood, we have this general wellness. Uh, I hate to use the word nutraceutical because we get into the legal issues of how we're going to schedule a nutraceutical within the Controlled Substances Act, but a general wellness component of the hemp plant. And it's actually multiple components. We know there are around, I think we've discovered about 140 plus cannabinoids so far uh, in the cannabis plant. The more 
popular ones that we're aware of, of course, THC, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, a intoxicating um, uh, cannabinoid and with tremendous medical benefit. And then another common cannabinoid with no intoxicating properties is cannabidiol, CBD. Keep in mind, we have many CBG, CBN, that's cannabigerol, cannabinol. But CBD is what's all the rage here as we sit today making this presentation for everybody. And the reality is that we have something called an endocannabinoid system. All mammals have this endocannabinoid uh, system, and they are receptors that um, regulate our entire homeostasis. In fact, it's been discovered in our lifetimes, in the 80s, that we have actually more cannabinoid receptors in our brains than we have neurotransmitters. Understand that this is akin to discovering at some point that the world was actually round and not flat. This is being discovered in our lifetimes. So Permaculture Artisans is my landscape design contracting firm and uh, we started in 2006 and since then we've grown to having over 15 employees at times even more than that. Uh, everybody's getting paid a living wage so success number one is that we've created a business that really honors the people inside the company and uh, I mean, we have people working for permaculture artisans that have been with us over 10 years. The turnover rate is almost nil, right? Like we have a loyalty and investment in each other and a strong community that we've created. So to me, like the social side of permaculture artisans has been hugely successful. The second part is, I'm gonna stick to permaculture artisans for a second. The second part is we've worked on hundreds of projects throughout California anywhere from sustainable forestry work, thinning fuel load uh, in, in congested overgrown forests, reducing fire risk, and then taking all that material and turning it into carbon sponges. So getting it back into the ground as a carbon sequestration practice. We've worked in pastoral systems, hundreds of acres of pasture that have been you know, taken over by invasive grasses, um, <laughs> not managed well, and helped bring in um, grazing management systems and tree planting agroforestry systems to help regenerate these pastoral environments. And then we've worked with schools and cities and counties and any number of private residences to completely transform their landscapes. We've put in public food forests um, at our Sebastopol City Hall and City Library. Um, we've put food forests in public parks, food forests at schools. So, you know, the, the ripples and impact um, of just the basic work that we do, with it, whether it's design or it's install, installation or it's stewardship consultation, uh, has had a really big impact on the land. And we haven't tracked all the numbers through the years, but I know that we have put in systems that are catching tens of millions of gallons of water every single year in drought-stricken California. We have planted thousands and thousands of trees throughout our bioregion and all the benefits that trees bring of habitat and building soil and providing food and providing medicine. So just to just the work in of itself, I mean, in some ways it's so simple. It's so simple to plant a tree, right? I mean, we should all be planting trees every year, dozens of trees every year. Just, it's almost like our responsibility 
to plant trees. And maybe one of the most powerful acts we can do to heal the land. So that's some of the success of permaculture artisans. Now the permaculture skill center is a very diverse system. Um, I picked up a book for my now fiance, then boyfriend, and um, he was interested because he took an entomology course and his professor was a beekeeper also. So he had like a bucket list uh, that he kept and beekeeping was on there and goats and ride my bike across the country and all this crazy stuff. Um, but for whatever reason, I was like, bees, that's so weird. Because <laughs> um, when I think of a beekeeper, I think of like the Burt's Bees guy, you know, like bearded 1800s kind of guy. Uh, so anyway, I bought him a book, thought it was interesting, and I just got uh, hooked, I guess. I read it just to see like if it was good. And then uh, I just kind of fell in love with the bees, really, because they're so cool. And I started reading about them more, and at the time I was studying art. And um, so I started kind of exploring that aspect of it. Like all these other artists have been interested in bees and, and made art about them and that kind of thing. And I wrote a paper on it. And then um, I just, I got to the point where like I was reading about it so much and there wasn't really, I had to get them to find out more, you know? So that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, and then it just like snowballed from there. So. What I have found is that uh, I, I call honeybees like the gateway bug because people get into honeybees and you know, they might get into it because they want to save the bees, they heard about it in the news, or maybe they just like honey. Um, but everyone who stays in it is just obsessed with bees. That's what happens to them. They become, they fall in love with bees and it's hard work and it's, it's challenging, you know? So that's why people stay in it. If they, they have to love it. Um, I think there's this like really annoying imbalance between the attention that honeybees get and the attention that wild bees get. Mm. And I think it's very true that the wild bees are in greater need because um, most of them are not super organisms the way honeybees are. So they're less resilient and less able to overcome a lot of the, the man-made challenges that are existing right now, um, like pesticide damage and um, lack of food and, and poor habitat and you know climate change. All those things are harder for them to overcome because they don't have the numbers that honeybees do. Biochar is a, a term we use today for what we call biological charcoal. It's charcoal fully carbonized. There's no life, no wood or no life left in it. It's just that skeleton, which is something we have right here. This one's made of bamboo. And this weighs one-third of what the original bamboo weighed because we took it all out by doing a process called pyrolysis. It's indirect heat without oxygen. So the key thing to know about burning anything, and fire is a subject that I'm really interested in, and uh, we'll talk a little later about some of the books that I've been reading on it. And it's necessary to our ecosystem, but we'll talk about that later. The key thing is, is that wood burns twice. First, it burns to charcoal. And then continuing the burn with the presence of oxygen, it turns into ash. And we don't want the ash. We want the charcoal. So by eliminating the oxygen, we remain in the charcoal stage and go all the way through. And again, very, very thoroughly carbonized is what biochar is. It's charcoal. It's carbon. Nature started using this carbon about 497 million years ago when the first trees and plants that started growing on Earth, because remember back then there was no fertility like we have today on the Earth. It was pretty barren. Everything came from the ocean and worked its way in. So as these first fires occurred, 
They left the charcoal and the ash behind. And nature is in a very, very slow pace. It's not in a hurry. So slowly, that charcoal and ash worked its way down into the root zone as more debris, leaves, and other dead material fell on top, composted on it, and created the next generation of soil. And as centuries and hundreds of millions of years go by, that goes deeper and deeper. And this char that's left behind has a very long life. This, this biochar will last 2,000 years in the ground easily. It's very stable. It's a fixed carbon. Unlike the carbon that we talk about when we're talking about compost and worm castings and other inputs of that sort, that's the fuel. This is the management system. So that's what biochar is. It manages the soil. It's not a food. There's no fertilizer in here. It's just charcoal, specially made. When nature makes it, it makes it good, bad, in between, all over the place. But nature doesn't have a problem because it's got so much time to neutralize out all the negatives about where it's good and where it's bad. We as humans have very short lives on this planet. So we need to do things a little quicker. And we're able to do that. So in the making of this biochar, we do it in a closed system. And it's called pyrolysis. So can you imagine for a moment there's a tube with a screw in it and these pieces of wood go through it. They, need, they should be dry, dry, the drier the better. And we go through here and then there's an outer chamber where the temperature gets up to up to 1800, 2000 degrees in some cases. Depends on what you're making and how you're making it. So it's a big variation. Then it drives off the gases that are inside the wood. No fire is touching this, but it turns into charcoal eventually. And it doesn't take very long in these systems. So now we've got all this gases stuff coming out. We call it syngas. And you can make fuels from it. You can make wood vinegar, which is very important. We'll talk about that. You can make all kinds of things. Or you can convert that fuel back into your system to have less use of natural gas, propane, diesel, whatever you're going to run one of these systems on. Either way, the carbon footprint on these mechanisms and the making and the use of biochar is three to one negative. Simply put, for every pound of biochar you put into your yard and your soil, three pounds of carbon gases were, were sequestered from going into the atmosphere. It's three to one negative. There's nothing close to that. And it's simple and it's been around with humans for as far as we know about 5,000 years. I, I was gobsmacked. I thought, how could the largest ethnic group on the planet come from a place that was this barren? And so I kind of became obsessed with understanding this, and I just kept studying it. And I kept documenting and studying it. And as the restoration went on, I was following the techniques they were using. And I was amazed it was possible to rehabilitate large-scale damaged ecosystems. You could rehydrate dehydrated biomes. You could revegetate areas which had lost all their vegetation. This brings back soil fertility, brings back microbial communities, uh, restores microclimates below the canopy. And this is the natural regulation for hydrology, weather, and climate. This is the basis of fertility and productivity in agriculture. This is the basis of biodiversity. This is an evolutionary outcome if we allow it to, to, you know, to self-select and don't choose all of the species and don't just modify everything. And so that 
as I started to realize this, I looked around and I thought, there's nobody who's studying this. I mean, as a journalist, I would be a thousand camera people jostling to take pictures of, of egotistical political leaders and talking about economic developments and so on. And then I'm standing alone in the middle of this place. And I, I felt like I'm looking through history. I see all of human history. And then beyond that, I see all of evolutionary history. And beyond that, I see geologic time. You know, and suddenly, I'm, I, I, was, I was just in another zone. And I, I felt like all the things that I'd been doing had given me some skills, but they also made me feel that, um, you know, human civilization was was misguided in believing that our political and economic systems and social systems are more important than life itself, because we are only one part, one generation in hundreds and thousands of generations of life. And we're, we're just passing through. We're, we're here for a short time and then we're gone. And we, you know, and I, as I, as I felt like I was maturing and learning something of great importance and, and I looked around and I, I realized I'm standing alone in a ruined landscape that's slowly starting to come back to life and very few people know about this. All these things are ways that you can cut back on how much carbon you use, which I think is critical. I th you have to eliminate your sources of carbon before you can really start thinking seriously about how you're going to sink carbon. But farmers, we have an obligation to figure this out. We have to figure out how we can both produce food and sink carbon and it's not as easy or straightforward as people think because at the deeper levels of soil we're, we're losing carbon and almost all modern ag systems are losing carbon so we need to integrate deep-rooted crops we need forest crops we need things like alfalfa or yacon or, or products that create a lot of root structure and, um, and then integrate those with food crops. I think we have to define what's nature, all of its nature. So I would have to say uh, surfing is definitely working with nature. And being a part of nature, I get to play. And then defining how I play, sometimes that's sticking my hands in the dirt, and other times it's pulling into big fat barrels or jumping 50 feet in the air with my kite. Uh, that's pretty cool, I have to say, and I'm really stoked on those aspects of nature, wind, water, um, earth. But what we're gonna focus on here right now, oh, water, okay. We're gonna focus on earth and water, I guess, sort of, and what we're doing with nature and how we can serve nature and also have nature serve us. What was it like growing up in Hawaii and you know, seeing like the Molokai fish ponds and you know, seeing the, the, the beginning of the restoration thereof? So um, being able to um, be around the renaissance of Hawaiian culture that's sort of moving forward, being able to play a part uh, with some of my uh, hanaid into sort of adopted family in Hawaii, 
they were the keepers of some of the fish ponds on East Molokai and still are to this day. And being able to watch that resurgence of their culture and being able to identify with something that their ancestors built and actually being able to restore it to a functioning, um, useful part of their community for ancient techniques of fish farming. I was able to learn quite a bit from being able to witness that and observe that going on around me in that community. So I feel there's a wealth of knowledge to be gained from ancient practices that we can bring into our everyday practices and try to implement them into what we're doing in modern times now. So sort of looking to our elders and our ancients for wisdom that's been passed down. And sometimes we're not there to see them, to talk to them about it. So what we really have to look at sometimes is the infrastructure they've left behind and the stories that are handed down of the way that things have been done in the past and try to look at them from a modern perspective as well and taking part in these systems. So yeah, the fish pond system on Molokai is extensive and really incredible uh, feat of engineering and a lot of knowledge. Unfortunately, also a lot of knowledge that's been lost through the years and the decimation of culture and a lot of things that, uh, uh, that the Hawaiians have faced through many years of struggles. And right now, um, I want to be careful how I say that looking back to your past and looking at the incredible um, abundance that your ancestors were able to create, taking pride in that and realizing that those ways were sufficient and um, prosperous, we can look back and we can sort of learn from the past what they've done before us and that it's worth taking a look at and um, including these um, insights from our elders, whether they're here present or whether it's been left behind in what they've built uh, to learn from and to move forward with. I think that it's, for me, it's been a really incredible experience being able to see these fish ponds and always thinking, wow, how'd they use them? In the middle of every fish pond, certain ones, actually I, I should use not say everyone, but in certain fish ponds, there are springs that come up in the center. And those springs feed a certain type of limu, which is seaweed and certain type of fish eat that seaweed. Now, if you wanted to use these ponds as fish traps, which that's where most of them were, they were actually fish traps. Some of them created an environment where native fish would come in there and they would breed, and that's where they were breeding at already. They'd come and eat this certain type of seaweed around the spring and deposit their eggs in the sand around it at the low tide. So the Hawaiians were smart enough to observe and watch these things going on around them and watch these patterns that were in nature, and they were able to mimic that and utilize these natural systems around them to sort of find a sustainable culture of farming fish for food. One thing in particular about the fish ponds was because they were open to the forces of nature, big waves, huge wave events, tsunamis, up hurricanes, all sorts of things broke these fish ponds down. And they were in a constant, uh, there was constant maintenance on them, rebuilding them and holding them into shape. They had gateways, which were called makahas, makaha, which is for letting the water in and out or letting the fish in or out of it 
between the high and the low tide. So these ponds were uh, managed extensively by an ancient Hawaiian system. So the history of me, our ancient ancestors were finding a beehive that flooded, um, probably in the trunk of a tree. And the bees left, the honey was left over, the water and the honey mixed together, the yeast that just floats around in the air lands in that honey water mix, turns into this beautiful bubbly libation that our hunter-gatherer ancestors went, oh, that's worth finding again. And there's an argument that early, that anthropologists who study early history make, which is that substances bring us together and facilitate storytelling, which facilitates symbolic thought, which evolves our brain. And so stories and symbols are very powerful technologies to make sense of the chaos of the world. So we like to think about these things when we drink mead and as we make mead. And we like to name um, our meads after things that are important to us. This one has a nickname. We call it wizard mead. It's a spiced sour mead. Um, we use California wildflower honey, San Diego mountain spring water, cloves, cardamom, and ginger. And it is just a delight to drink. Um, the first sip, oh, well, before we get to the first sip, we have to look at it. So it's got all kinds of cloudiness in there, but a very inviting yellow gold color. Um, it's got a fair amount of lace, lacy bubbles on it. And when I twirled it in the glass, it doesn't really rope, it sheets. So it's gonna be medium viscosity. Um, so that's things that we can tell just by looking at a drink. And that's part of the 6S method of mead appreciation, which is something I'll get into a little bit later. So when I first started doing the farmer's market, heirlooms 20, I'm not sure, 20 something years ago, heirlooms were kind of resurfacing then, so to speak. Um, they were popping up and uh, I kind of got a crash course. All of a sudden I went to farmer's market and I said, what am I selling? He goes, all these tomatoes. I said, those aren't tomatoes, they're yellow and purple and pink. And you know what, what's going on here? And he gave me a crash course. These are heirlooms, they taste really good. People are starting to respond to them. Anybody who buys just red tomatoes, stick a yellow or a pink or a purple one in their bag and you'll probably see them next week. So that was all part of the education process that needed to go on with heirlooms. Uh, a lot of round red and tasteless tomato affectionos, you know, I mean, they really, but a, a lot of it was tasting is believing. So um, that was just when they started catching on. They caught on pretty hard and pretty fast around here. Then I went on a mission a couple years into it, I wanted to find the holy grail tomatoes, the heirlooms that would make my customers come crawling back on their hands and knees and say, please sell me your tomatoes. Um, I grew about 200 varieties testing them and I found out that about five or 10% of them were really good. A lot of mediocrity, didn't fit what the customer wanted, didn't do so well in your region. Um, there was a lot of, a lot of undesirables and, and a certain amount of desirables. Then I started learning about open pollinated heirlooms were really weird. You could save the seeds from them. I'm 50 years old. I grew up in the height of the hybrid generation where they took and crossed two um, varieties, species of plants. You get the what you want for the first year. After that, it's kind of a crapshoot, so to speak. Um, so what happened is 
tomatoes typically cross-pollinate. So when I was growing all these hundreds of varieties, saving seeds from dozens of them, and I happen to save some seeds from some natural crossed, once in a while an insect will cross your tomato flowers and uh, cross the seeds. So I happened to save seeds from there, and the next year I was picking tomatoes and looking at this, looking at that, and I went, wow, those, these are some weird ones, and I had, what's going on here? I've never seen this. And, this must be a cross, one of those things I read about, you know, a rare cross. And then I tasted it. I remember, wow, okay, I'm a couple hundred tomato varieties into it. I've never seen anything like this, and I've actually never tasted anything like this. So it was as good or better than anything I tasted. I did more research, and I found out that you can take crosses, uh, two heirlooms cross. If you save seeds and pick the best of the best, typically growing, I grew hundreds, even thousands of plants over five to seven generations, picking the best of the best each year, you can stabilize them and turn them into an open pollinated form, the same thing that heirlooms are. So basically I'm doing the same thing that the people that brought heirlooms to us did a hundred years ago or whatever. They grew a bunch of pink tomatoes, they had a purple one show up, and everybody went, wow, that tomato's amazing, I'll save the seeds, grow a row, save the best, next year grow another row, save the best of the best, and repeat that. You can stabilize it and make it grow true um, to open pollinated form. So that's how I got there. It was kind of thrown to me. I call it the the curse and the gift. It was an amazing gift. I had some of the most amazing tomatoes in the whole world. I was the only person in the world holding these tomatoes. Um, I didn't quite know what a long, hard, struggling journey was going to be for the next 20 years. Um, not that I'd passed anything up. It's about that I had freedom. I could be a renegade, be my own boss, meet so many amazing people and everything and it just felt like uh, instinctual to be able to nurture the land collect the extra from it and go and feed people with it too so it's been a fun neat adventure This is just a sampling of the incredible insights, experience, and storytelling that's a part of this amazing course. It, I mean, I'm editing it, I got to film it, I got to do the interviews, and I'm watching things, you know, dozens of times over, and I'm learning more and more every single time I watch it because there's so much detail. When you have 60 plus teachers on top of a 400 page textbook with a 200 page workbook, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot to talk about. And the wonderful thing is it's all exciting. It's all hopeful and inspiring. The really special thing about this course is it's not just lecture. You're not just getting this old fashioned form of teaching where we're trying to information transfer. Here's this information. You go try to hold it. No, no, that that's dead. That model of teaching is dead. This course is a completely new kind of permaculture certification course. Yes, we'll do the standard thing. We'll have 72 hours to do the PDC. We'll have a design requirement, but that's it. I mean, like that's all there is to get a PDC. We're actually gonna go further. We're gonna apply things. We're gonna have application. We're gonna get feedback. We're gonna have evaluation and analysis, and people are gonna launch real projects that are going to make the world and their lives better. And that's going to be how they get their advanced certification. So the PDC, that's great. It's wonderful. We'll stick with that. That's great. But we're going to have an advanced PDC. 
attached to this course on top of this course this course is so big it has so many like outriggers on top of it i have never seen any other course online with this many teachers with this much depth with this much organization and peer reviewers and citations and deeper learning connecting to real regenerative careers we can heal the earth and make money at the same time it's it's not true that permaculture is a way to just check out and you know you can use it that way sure you can go and just do a homestead but it's permanent culture this is not like a permanent one man solution you know <laughs> this is this is us working together this is us creating an amazing regenerative future and that's really what permaculture is permaculture is this lens to problem solve with the patterns and the systems of nature to provide beneficial labor for both people and the planet on into the future. And so we, we're at this cusp moment. We've, we're running out of the natural resources that we've, we've relied upon, the finite ones, the non-renewable ones. And now we've got to make do with the renewable ones and recycling the, the ones that we have in smart ways that are syntropic, that are not causing the diffusion of pollution into other areas. We need the cycles to all be enriched and to grow and to be passionately alive. We need, we need huge, massive change. We need to regrow the forests. We need to bring back the soils. We need to clear and clean all the water from the mountains down to the sea and in all the oceans. We need to have that all be pristine so the life can ramp up and then take back in the carbon that's in the atmosphere because that's what life does. That's what it's going to keep doing. That's what all the plants are doing right now. I mean, they're trying to eat up that, that CO2 as much as possible. There's obviously we're, we're hitting tipping points, but I do believe there are positive tipping points, but we have to start pairing our patterns with nature. That means our economy, our education. And I've been working on the education part for several years now. I've been working with all these people, these amazing teachers on it too, but we need your help. We need you to take that next step, but we're gonna we're gonna take it with you. We're gonna walk with you all the way. We're not gonna let you go. We're not gonna point the way and say you go. We're gonna do it with you. This course has never been anything like it. You should check it out. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more. <laughs> There's a lot more that you get to learn. I mean, I'm I, we barely even touched the service. We got a, a few teachers here that, that that have shared. There's so much to this story. There's so many places for everyone to fit in. Social permaculture, regenerating huge landscapes for businesses, for you know, bee companies, for so many different things. Everything is finding new edges and new values as we get more scientific. Because as soon as we start testing these things, we're like, holy cow, did you know this is also in there? And that's also, and this does this, and that does that. It just is a can of worms. I mean, people, for the longest time, I've not even studied the native indigenous plants and medicines and fibers and all the stuff and foods that, that are implicit in their landscape right now around them. And people like Sean Sherman, the sous chef, who's another teacher in this course, you know, have really brought it to the fore by putting it into a amazing chef platform. So he changed the, the, the place where it was being presented and suddenly it's this huge success. So we just need to do that with permaculture. We just need to pull into the mainstream. And now that we have all these people involved, everyone's vetted, everyone's got businesses, they're making money, they're, 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 they're teaching people, they've got the scientific proof, they have the research. 
we have the language and we've got the actual research that ties into all the universities now we've got it all connected we're ready for the mainstream scrutiny we're, we're, we're tying it into uni I'm talking to universities they, I mean we are at a cusp moment everyone's listening everyone's asking questions everyone's turning to us like the phone's off the hook I get calls from all over the world people want to give me land and it's like no 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 <laughs> I gotta finish this because if I can help everyone where they're at then I could go play with land and have fun and all that I mean I'm, I'm working on a site here I'm still working with land that's not the point the point is it's we need to get our economy and our complete understanding our, our education on up into the economy so the, the, the that whole framework is all one piece we need to influence that whole thing and really get the understanding there because think about just this let me just put this when you plug into the regenerative economy and this is an economy based upon renewable energy based upon sinking carbon and all right when you plug into that the debts start disappearing and and they can't, they can't not disappear because you don't owe an oil company you set up the infrastructure you don't owe an oil company you don't owe the environment because you're giving back to the environment because you're growing your energy because every day provides more free energy that your system just naturally gathers we're at a, a cusp moment and the rest of the world you know is, is, is paying attention to this isn't just an American thing uh, I'm getting it from all parts of the world my, my teachers are from all over the world my students are from all over the world so this is happening this is right now this is our year I've said it before 2018 this is the year of regeneration it's kicking off join us there's never I mean there, there's nothing like this there's there's never gonna be a time more important than right now to get involved the the sooner you get involved the greater difference you'll make and the more regenerative future we will be able to have because as soon as we get these changes in we'll start hitting those positive tipping points and we'll start blunting the force of all these climatic instability because <clears throat> that's what it is we have energy and we've got uh, bottlenecks and systems and we've got cycles that are stopped at a certain point and they're not cycling all the way we've got everything in uh, under the Sun and it's it's just <laughs> a little bit wonky right now but it's it's totally fixable right now there are further on tipping points that are much much harder to fix but we are we are in a moment where we are waking up and grabbing the wheel and pulling away from the edge that's where we're at right now and so i'm asking you to wake up and join us there is a wonderful amazing future just over that horizon and i want you to come with us i don't want you to be left behind we start the course in 15 days you'll probably hear this tomorrow it'll be 14 days it's just two weeks. We're gonna start the day after Earth Day. Cause Earth Day, everyone, you know, they, they, they have these hopes, they have these feelings, but we're gonna kick it into action the day after. We're gonna start making choices and decisions that are informed, that are powerful, that are empowering, that change the world and change ourselves all at once. Cause it has to be holistic. I mean, this is all, that's, the, that's what really what's going on. We gotta make it holistic. It's inside, it's outside. So I, I, I invite you to the Advanced Permaculture Student Online. 
and I hope you join us. It's going to be incredible. I'm Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively.